You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee and this week we are rejoined by Paul Doroshenko. Hello. <laughs> Hi Paul. Glad to be back. I think I made some joke last week about kicking you off the podcast. Sorry. I listened to the podcast. I didn't hear a joke about me. Maybe oh. I wasn't paying attention to that part. Yeah, you probably weren't. That's probably good. Anyway, I wanted to record with you this week because there's been quite a few driving law-related developments and driving driving law interesting issues to talk about. I think the first was this uh, huge announcement by the government yesterday um, at the time of recording, which would be, what, Tuesday? Uh, Tuesday was that, morning. Was it Monday or Tuesday? It was Tuesday morning that they announced increases to the speed limits on certain highways will be no more. Oh, that, that, yeah. No, I thought you were talking about the uh, the changes to... Uh, no, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, yeah, the speed limit increase is um, a fascinating thing because uh, uh, it, it fascinates me because now the former minister is being blamed, basically, for the deaths that they're attributing to the speed limit increase, which is frankly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, the ministry investigated those roads. The ministry came back and made the recommendations. The ministry did it on the basis of good evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the evidence of the deaths on the road um, doesn't seem to be particularly good evidence from what we've seen. I mean, maybe well, it could been, be. There's been a lot of criticism of the study uh, for various reasons, in large part due to the methodology used. Um, it's failure to account for other factors that could have affected weather, um, uh, weather for example, and um, uh, increased traffic on the roadways, things like that. So, Did, it's, did you listen to the announcement? Did you listen to the ministry's busy being a lawyer. Oh, okay. Well, I was waiting for somebody to pick me up. Um, and uh, so I listened to it all. I dialed in on the media line and um, I could have asked a question as media. Anyway, yeah. they didn't ask me which media I was. I just asked Paul me. Paul Dora from the Driving yeah, Law yeah, Podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it was supposed to be for accredited it, it, media yeah, only. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, it's uh, that's okay. I, I mean, I put my phone on mute, so I wasn't trying to ask any questions <laughs> or anything like that. But now I listened to the whole uh, media version, and um, of course, you know it's a it's a pitch, right? It's a it's a they're selling sure. it to us. Sure. Um, but you know when the people from the ministry come out who are responsible for this, and they say, "Look, we've looked at this, and we've come to this conclusion that you know the speed limits here have been a problem." Uh, you you give them a lot of credit, but then when they say that it's the the speed limit issue is related to the highway between. Comox and Campbell River, um, and that that is the area that they've got the, to lower the, the speed limit. The You're thinking flattest, to yourself, nicest stretch of highway in, that, in all of British Columbia. Yeah, it, 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 there's no big curves. It's not high mountainous conditions. You're not getting sudden weather changes. It's, I don't know. It almost seems like pandering. Like, oh, we'll just lower it here because everybody on the island drives slow anyway. Yeah, it just seemed that seemed political, and I. I I know that accidents can go up. There's all sorts of other reasons that accidents can go up. The reporting um, on the accidents is reporting by police officers. The RCMP originally came out and said they were opposed to any speed limit increase. 
And then, gee, they're the ones who provide the information that leads to the statistics. And all they have to do is, you know, say, oh, speeding was likely involved in this accident. But where was, like, where was the data in the original study um, that sort of spurred all of these changes? Where was the data that said all of these crashes were vehicles traveling at or above the increased speed limit? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, they, I, I'm they just I'm, I'm saying that the ministry, you know, I'm, I'm going to give them some credit. I didn't get to see their slideshow because I was on the phone. Uh, I know that it was broadcast online and I was on the phone listening to it on the phone. But mm-hmm. the um, I'm sure that they relied on something. Otherwise, the media would be picking them apart. But in the end, the questions were from the media. Don't you feel bad about the people who died in the intervening three years? which was frankly ridiculous. You could lower the speed limit down to 30 kilometers an hour for the entire province at all times. And then you could ask the government that did that, don't you feel bad about the fact that the speed limit was 100 or 60 or 50, you know, for sure. all these years or and all could, these people who you died? you could lower the speed limit by 30 kilometers an hour everywhere, watch the increase in rear end collisions that would be consistent with that, and then say, well, don't you feel bad about lowering the speed limit? Yeah, I, I, it made me very angry to hear uh, the media asking that. You know, I, I, I get that you're looking for an angle when you're producing a story and you're trying, you know, you're out there as a reporter and you're not going to have the best question every time. But there was really good questions they could have asked. And those were the questions that they asked in the end, which, um, you know, <laughs> didn't help the discussion at all. Um, You know, there are spots that, you know, where I think the speed limit could be lowered. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Coming up to (laughs) through the snow shed. Yeah, on the Coquihalla. That is one spot where if you're in the right-hand lane, as you should be, and you come up into the snow shed, you can't see the semi-trailer that's going 70 or 80 kilometers an hour going down that hill. And you can't change because the right hand, you know, it's a going down, uh, you're heading into a curb. You're going to have a real problem changing lanes at 110 or 120 kilometers an hour. And that's, you know, considered every, safe for the... Every time I come up to the, to the snow shed, like coming out of Merritt, um, approaching the snow shed on that hill going down, I get into the far right lane. I'm going... Tr- you know, truck trailer speed because I'm petrified about going down that hill around a corner through a snow shed with limited visibility where there's weather changes expected and the road conditions are changing when you get to the covered part. There's concrete instead of instead of asphalt. Yeah. It, the, the entire thing is is terrifying to me. Well, I would be going blasting past you, you at be. 120 and, kilometers uh, an hour. I've but been a every time in I, the car, I've every, been, every time know, I drive the... through, the, every time I drive through there, I think, gee, you know, it's really it should be probably a hundred approaching the yeah, snow shed and in the snow shed, and then out of the snow shed on both sides, 120, fine. But that little stretch is one spot where I'm just waiting for the big collision to happen. I'm waiting oh, yeah. for the big snow shed collision to happen. And coming and, out of the snow shed when you're like going up the hill on the way up the Coquihalla, that's fun. Just no, I know. It's great. You, stepping you know, on the gas. Step, put the pedal down and you're up to 120 Ooh. or, you know, sometimes slightly more until you notice. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, I just, I cannot believe, like the Island Highway, my biggest problem with the Island Highway is staying awake. Mm-hmm. And because you know, it's just there's so straight nothing. and so flat and there's nothing there there's and there's no, no risk. Features. I know. And so I'm thinking to myself that, um, that, like the 120 kilometers an hour, frankly, helps me pay attention. And where were the reduced <laughs> speed limits places like, oh, I don't know, the Malahat? 
hugely dangerous location, part of the highway on the island, part of the increased speed limits. Why did they not reduce them there when there's... I thought they did. I thought they did. No? No, not on the Malahat. They did it between... They did it on like the Okanagan... Not the Okanagan connector. The connector between Merritt and Peachland. Yeah, yeah. Also a perfectly easy stretch of, of highway to drive. There's a couple of spots there that are a little bit tight, and this, but the speed limit slows down. And you and I have both driven on there and, mm-hmm. and had a few frightening instances. But those are in circumstances when the... There was dense when, fog. Yeah, when the weather's bad. Um, but the, for the rest of the time, for like all summer long, there's lots of times you're on there midweek. You know, 120 kilometers an hour is extremely safe. And it's just an issue of they could create variable speed corridors there and that would be the way to go they've created these variable speed corridors they're they're claiming that they are effective Mm -hmm. i was thinking about the variable speed corridors so the government could have to avoid any criticism and they haven't had much criticism about this you know you and i are maybe uh, us in sense bc are probably the only people who are sort of calling them out and sense bc (laughs) is doing a much better drive faster meanwhile i don't want to drive sense sense bc is are the ones who are really calling them out and you know forcing them to to show us the evidence. But um, what the government could have done, as opposed to this, is they could have made them variable speed corridors and then just set it at 110, like basically all the time. Um, And that would be some way of getting around any criticism of of the um, speed changes. Because nobody would, no, you, you know, you'd have no control over it. You show up there and the flashing sign or the, the light lights up and says it's 110, which is extremely common. In Germany, you can be on the Autobahn and suddenly it'll slow down to 100 and then it'll slow down to 80. And you can be on the Autobahn where people would be driving 220 in certain conditions, uh, driving at 80 kilometers an hour for a long you know, period of time. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just you have to monitor the road. Well, they're monitoring the roads anyway, though. They have all those highway cams. They have the Drive BC that will update you on road conditions. So I don't see how uh, it's any additional burden on the government. And I'm pretty sure you could just write a program. There's got to be an algorithm for looking at the road conditions and identifying the appropriate speed and updating the signs. That's probably what they're using now. It's not like there's some dude in an office looking at pictures going, oh, well, I'd better adjust the speed. Here's my best guess. I think they do that too. I think they're watching it on the cameras. I'm, I'm assuming they're doing that. I'm just saying... Do you think there's a human behind the variable speeds? I think so, yeah. Someone I, tell us. If you know who's behind the variable speeds, send us an email. Let us know. Tell us on Twitter. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. Um, you know, there's been it's discussion like, about... no attention to the man behind the curtain. I want to know who is the man behind the curtain. There's been... Uh, there was lots of discussion about um, circumstances that would change the variable speed. Uh, and... Um, you know, whether or not it's appropriate and lots of discussion as well about police officers being able to enforce it when it's changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there has not been much discussion about how they're making those determinations. Um, and I think, that, you know, I know in Germany they are made by somebody who's watching it on a camera. It's like an actual dude. Yeah, there's or people watching it. Yeah. Could be a woman. Yeah, but they also probably are able to, to detect the volume of traffic. So it may be that they can detect volume of traffic. Uh, they may have weather stations that alert them. Uh, and then they get out there and they look on the camera. Okay, all right, sure enough. I'm going to lower this down. Hmm. Well, that will be an interesting thing for us to research. So ultimately, we don't agree with the decreases where they're decreasing them, but we don't necessarily disagree with decreases. 
That was I, a complicated I, sentence. I just have uh, great difficulty believing. Like on the Sea to Sky, I, uh, it doesn't surprise me one bit that the that accidents went up. Um, I, I just expect that with the type of traffic, with the people who are driving, people I drive. People, so they're not they're not necessarily paying attention. They're all just desperately wanting to get to their Friday night uh, there for their ski weekend. Um, it's uh, some a lot of people go there just for the excitement of the drive. So I they have a I, whole a whole thing for the excitement of the drive. I know I fully expected accidents to go up when they increased the speed limit there. I was surprised that they did. But on the on the uh, island highway, I, I I'm just not convinced that that there was a need. Well, we'll look at the data. I mean, time will pass, and we'll see data about whether crashes on those specific sections where they sent the speed limit back down went down. I I tweeted immediately to the uh, Ministry of Transport that I expect them to give us a report each year for the next yeah. three years. I want it. I want to. I want to. I'm, I'm quite curious, and it, you know, if it if it bears out, then so be it. So be it. That's fine. Yeah. All right. So on to our next topic. So the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, because there's been a lot of media attention lately to this, is those tickets that are being given out for cannabis in cars. So basically the equivalent of like an open liquor ticket, but basically loose cannabis in the vehicle. Yeah. I mean, you can have loose cannabis in the vehicle. You just can't have it within reach of the driver. Um... Uh, it's supposed to be in an approved container, and again, you're back to the thirty. No, you can have it. You can have it open. You can have an opened container of cannabis, so long as it's not within. No, but it's supposed to be like in a government packaging. No, no, no. There's three rules. Okay, what are the three rules? Rule one: if it's sealed in the original packaging, you can have it wherever in okay, the car. Fair enough. Yeah. Two: if it's opened, you can have it in the car, so long as it is not. Um, within reach of the driver or readily accessible to the driver. So if you've got your cannabis that you opened, you you drove to Kamloops, you bought it at the cannabis store, they happen to still have some product left, and you opened it and you had half of it, and then you waited an appropriate period of time before driving, and you wanted to take it with you, you can put it in a Ziploc baggie and throw it in your purse and throw your purse in the back seat. That's totally fine. Okay. So and then plants, you can have up to four plants so long as they're not in your car. Yeah, so long as they're not budding or flowering. <laughs> Driving around in your car with yeah, your four plants. Yeah, just a bunch of four little baby plants, not doing anything. Okay, sure. If you've got a hatchback, I always always think that I could grow some cannabis in the back of my uh, my the, my brother's Datsun B two ten. I was thinking because... like the Rainforest Cafe, <clears throat> you know, with the ceiling all planty. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> you can't grow cannabis in your car. I think I could have grown cannabis in my car. Of course, I was like 15. There is actually no specific ban on growing cannabis in your car. You just can't get to the budding or flowering stage. Yeah, I think you are supposed to only grow it in your home, and it's got to be not publicly visible. So if it's in your car, it's publicly visible. <laughs> no, 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 no. You put up, put up you know, those, those things. You know, the sun's got to get in there somehow. Sun yeah, yeah, that might work. That might work. Anyway, we'll see. Well, I mean, don't don't grow cannabis in your car on the basis of the information in this podcast. Well, the uh, there's some, but if you do, the probability of enforcement is pretty slim. So what we've seen is that police officers are giving tickets to people for open cannabis in their car, and every time they do it, it seems to. 
be they phone up the yeah. the local media and say we, we gave out a ticket. ticket. And they're like, <laughs> I was like guy sitting in my okay. office across from my desk. He's like, why are they picking on me and putting me on the news? Um, the uh, it's pretty silly uh, that they're doing that. And it's can you it, imagine if like they phoned the news media every time they gave out an open liquor ticket? I know. Like, so, that's all we'd see stories about. 14 open liquor tickets last night. Well, it's hilarious because, you know, again, we talked about the sky falling when cannabis was legalized and, and these police holding that out as the reason to to uh, basically postpone legalization all of these months. And the sky hasn't fell. And it's like they're looking for something to justify their ridiculous, absurd position that they took for years about the threat of cannabis. and And... It's just not there. I mean, you know. Oh, totally. And this is like literally the only enforcement they're doing, it seems. They're doing 24 hours and they're doing cannabis in your car tickets. They're not busting the shops that are still operating illegally. They're not policing people who are smoking it on the street that I've seen. They're not, you know, stopping people who are obviously using illicit cannabis because you can't get illicit cannabis right now. There's lots of circumstances where people, I see things on the internet where people are like outright openly breaking the law and there's no enforcement. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they can just do it. And it's interesting because we actually had a chance to talk to um, David Eby today, our attorney general in in British Columbia, because we were at a lunch he was at and um, he was speaking at. And uh, we asked him afterward, you know, where are you in the process of the of the getting enforcement on here. And he said, well, the police are doing it now. Uh, really? Yeah, and, really? <laughs> and, you know, we'll have our, our, our task force or whatever, our community policing um, group up and running within, you know, so-and-so months. And, you know, Kyla and I are looking at each other as he's saying this. And, uh, you know, I admire him. He's a smart guy and I, I get it. And he's a representative of the government. They've got some problems, but I have to not, say... He's also not the one that's solely responsible for that. Well, right? that's no, foreign it's, that's foreign work. Yeah, I, I get that. But he's, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, the police are not enforcing this. I mean, I know yeah. the Vancouver police are not enforcing this. You could probably go and set up, um, you know, on the corner of Robson and... Uh, uh, right downtown Hornby and Robson and set up a mobile stand uh, selling cannabis. And I'd be surprised if they oh, came up. Oh, they shut that down because you might sell cannabis to an opioid-addicted person. I know they shut that down. To try and deter down. them from using opioids. That That's was, when they'll intervene. That was, that was pre-legalization. Uh, I don't know that they would shut it down now. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I honestly if don't know what... If you were giving what... it away, I don't think they would. If you're selling it, I think they might. But if you're giving it away, they won't. I have no idea. All I know is that the the enforcement of it in British Columbia, um, you can legally the, the give. Law, the law came out long before the enforcement, and the expectation that the police are going to be in, enforcing it is, um, I mean, it's just not happening. So, but you can you can legally give away cannabis to another adult if you lawfully obtain that cannabis yes and none of those none of know, it is lawfully none of that is lawfully right obtained now. the dispensaries it's not lawfully obtained these are still illegal grow-ups where it's coming from in the vast majority of the cases not always not always but most of them um you know there's there's no expectation or nobody's you know held them to a obligation to only have uh legal cannabis i'm not saying that the government should be out there running around busting doors God, in no if, um, if they're not in a position to provide the service of making the cannabis available to people, which I think is one of the things that was sort of being suggested by DBDB. He was saying, you know, there's only 
two places in BC where you can get it. You know, if they're in that position where it's legal but they can't give it to you, maybe they should be a little bit no, more. I'm 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 with you there. I agree 100%. And as I've said, I don't you know I don't think anybody is supportive of going and shutting down these dispensaries today. But all of these people are ultimately going to have a defense, probably not effective, that they will persuade themselves that they have perhaps that they're somehow grandfathered, Issue or that they can. Some, yeah, that is a defense. I know. <laughs> and so, well, it is a defense, but... It mm, doesn't really apply. I don't think it applies, but... The, you can uh, argue it. But I think that many people will try and argue that. And I would be um, greatly surprised if people don't try and argue that. I don't think it's a successful, uh, likely to be a successful defense, but a lot of people are going to persuade themselves that that is appropriate. And that discussion will happen within the cannabis community because there's people out giving misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, will, uh, we will see people who end up in trouble for you know, violating certain aspects of the Cannabis Act and and Bill C-45 and so forth. So There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to take in there. It's not just what you can have in your car and whether you can smoke while driving, you can't, and whether you can eat it while driving, you can't. There's also, I heard an interview where somebody was saying, you know, one of the things we're going to have to litigate is what is cannabis? And this was a lawyer. And that shocked me because... What is cannabis doesn't need to be litigated. It's actually very clearly defined in the act. Well, that is clearly defined. But when I read the act and start looking at some of the things that I are being brought to my attention, a lot of things are implied, uh, an implied prohibition on the certain type of behavior or whatever, you know, I'm looking at. But it's not necessarily as clear as I would like. Some of it is clear in other angles. You know, people can be violating multiple sections of mm-hmm. of the legislation, for example. But some of the things I see out there, I don't know. We'll wait and see. I mean, I, I'm... I The implied thing, though, is interesting because a lot of, at least if you're talking about British Columbia's Cannabis Control and Licensing Act, it's largely going to be proceeding, I mean, aside from the tickets that have been given out, as administrative hearings, which means you have a tribunal responsible for interpreting their own legislation, the reasonableness standard, deference to any reasonable interpretation, it gives them a lot of leeway in interpreting it. We are departing from driving law. We are departing from driving law, but we're talking about administrative law. Another cannabis in cars issue that I wanted to talk about, driving law related, is where does the law go from here in relation to searches of vehicles? Because I think that's a big, a big unanswered question that not a lot of people are talking about. Right, you know, up until legalization, if you had the odor of fresh cannabis in your vehicle, the Court of Appeal had said in numerous cases, lots of BC Supreme Court cases, this is a handful that go the other way, but by and large, you look at cases like Ashby, um, that's grounds to search a vehicle because possession of cannabis is illegal. You can take the people out, you can arrest them, and then you can search incident to the arrest. It's no longer illegal to possess cannabis. If it's not plainly visible and accessible, readily accessible to the driver, there's no offense being committed. Even if there was an offense being committed, it's a provincial offense. And it's not one that there's a power to arrest for in the Offense Act. So then what? How do you search a car? Well, yeah, I was thinking about that too. There's there's fewer options for the police now. Uh, if they just smell fresh marijuana, you know, there's lots of times fresh marijuana has led to the discovery of a handgun in the glove box. Sure. And or... that's not going to exist anymore. But the other thing is, 
smoked marijuana. The okay. order of burned marijuana used to not give you grounds uh, for an arrest, and but, now it does. Yeah, I know. But now if you've got loose marijuana sitting there, you know, that used to be uh, grounds to search your vehicle. So if you had sure. open marijuana... Uh, even a, just a small amount, a pipe with some sitting there, that was grounds for a police officer to detain you Never and to conduct for possession of yeah, controlled substance. and to conduct a, a perimeter search, basically search your vehicle. And now, you know, I don't think when they're just giving you a ticket for it that they have any grounds anymore to search your vehicle. Is this going to completely stymie drug investigations that start with vehicle stops? There's this whole like, what do they call it, the pipeline project where. Traffic officers are trained to look for indicia of, of drug oh trafficking. God, yeah, think of the money that has been spent in the last decades. There was they, the police officers would be sent to conferences. You know, you talk to the police officers from Vailmount or Blue yeah, River or something like you that. You see a lot of empty fast food containers. That's probably a drug trafficker. I'm like, or it's me. <laughs> well, they were they were also excited about it. Oh, I've learned all this stuff about how to identify. Oh, rental car, uh, one bag in the back seat, and that's it. <laughs> And some, you know, empty fast food containers Sounds like and a single guy. going to an out-of-town trial. <laughs> no, I, no, well, there's always police officers, you know, talking, all excited about the fact that yeah. they went to this conference in Saskatoon or whatever the hell it was um, to learn about this. All of that is now garbage uh, training, meat, waste of money. Yeah, it's all also open to relitigation. What now does the smell of fresh cannabis in a vehicle mean? If anything, from a policing perspective. I don't think it means anything. I think how many times I've had my client's trunk opened. Yeah. Because of an odor of fresh cannabis or some can, other thing. Forget that. That's done. You can have cannabis in your trunk. Yeah. So uh, if the probability of you getting caught now with 20 pounds of cannabis in your trunk is no. probably dropped. If you... Don't do it. If you have you know, several wads of $100 bills sitting on your passenger seat. Yeah, $20 bills with elastics on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That, it's, not, might... not, it's not hundreds very often. It's usually 20s with elastics on Sure, but large quantities of cash. <laughs> that might, you know, coupled with the smell of cannabis, say there might be more going on here. Yeah, well, it's um, the transportation of cannabis in the short term is probably... Um, stymied to some extent but you could still end up searched and have everything seized and then have to go to court and then have to have a determination on the lawfulness of the search so Mm -hmm. in any event we're not encouraging anybody to break the law we're just saying that this is going to change the way that the law uh, is going to be applied and interpreted and a whole body of case law related to driving driving law is now going to be sort of turfed um, in some respects which is yeah. interesting because we keep talking about in the office how often the law of driving drives the law. This, the podcast's pun. Driving yeah. law drives the law. And we're going to see driving law, cannabis cases change drug trafficking investigations should, significantly. Should we talk about these tickets at all of open cannabis or should we hold our cards close to our chest? What, about disputing them? Well, yeah. I mean, we've looked at it and we don't think that we could lose one. So no. far. <laughs> well, I mean, they would have to, from looking at the, at the legislation. Do you want to ha- say this? Well, I don't think there's no, there's, there's any secret? big secret. Okay. All right. It's the same, it's the same as with liquor. I put I, this in a blog post. I know. My concern is people trying to, you know, the self-represented accused who thinks that they can run this argument. And I think they've got a problem if they do it themselves. You have to have a lawyer basically to run this. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I don't, you and I might not be thinking of the same thing. My question is, how are they going to prove that what you have is cannabis? We know what cannabis is in the legislation, but you need some type of testing to prove that 
that plant is cannabis. Is it going to be calling a botanist? Is it going to be sending, sending it to, it the, to lab the lab and waiting 18 months for an analysis? It's not even a bodily substance. And then, you know, do they, if they're going to seize it and send it to the lab for an analysis, are they going to file a form 5.2? Um, and all of those issues? Well, and are they, or is it going to be a robust common sense inference made by the court when Which they Which the courts see have it. drawn in drug trafficking cases before. I know. I know. But usually there's, you know... But this is one of the significant problems that's posed for the police in issuing these tickets. And, and you know, I know there's other uh, people out there who have the dream of running a constitutional argument on on these tickets, but the reality is you're, you're better probably, off to win you're probably just better off to win the ticket for your client and, uh, and save them the being the hero. Yeah. And the reality is that you probably as a client would spend more money running a constitutional argument on where you can put your cannabis in your car than it's worth. And we also know because it's going if to be, if you want us to do it, we'll do it. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be advised. it's going to be framed up the same way as the open liquor ticket, mm-hmm. uh, and you could go run it's that constitutional. I know, I know, and you could run that constitutional challenge. And um, the government um, the lawyers for the government recently took the position uh, in these cases that they're going to start seeking costs. Yeah. So you could end up in a situation where you've got a, uh, a very inexpensive ticket that doesn't show up on your driving record for having open cannabis in your vehicle and decide you're going to be the guy who runs the constitutional argument because you've persuaded yourself that this is appropriate or somehow you've been persuaded that this is appropriate. And then you end up losing because the law is the same as the law for alcohol, lose the constitutional argument and then have a cost order awarded against you. Yeah, it's horrible. Could be expensive. In any event... Um, that is cannabis and driving Yeah. again and not impaired driving this time. Yeah. Topic three. We have three topics today. We do. And the third one is, well, you call it a bombshell. Well, it's not, it's, I mean, I sat down the other day, I was on a CBC program the other day, um, talking about changes to the driver point premium, driver risk premium. These were announced a while back, but they're just coming into effect now. And I sat there with my, um, you know, a sheet of paper as I was I was on CBC radio and adding up the numbers. But today we had the numbers sort of clarified for us uh, by uh, Attorney General David Eby when we were at lunch. And is it a bombshell? Kyla says it's not a bombshell. She it's says just bombshell somebody sat down and worked out the numbers. In that nobody has been misled about this or told this wasn't coming, but I don't think it's ever been expressed as clearly as it was today. As of March 1st, 2019, so we're talking four months from now. March or April? March. The ICBC changes happen in April. April. These changes happen in March. As of March 1st, for a second cell phone conviction, the driver risk premium that drivers have to pay, an annual premium, is $2,000. Per year for three years. That's a lot of money. $6,000. Yeah, for two cell phone tickets. If you have... A second cell phone ticket. That's unbelievable. I mean, that's pretty punitive. Yeah. Quite amazing. Um, the uh, talk about, you know, the, there's been all this discussion about, and, and it, again, we don't see the evidence for it, but there's all this discussion about how it's as dangerous as impaired driving. I don't see the person who's looking at their cell phone at the, in, while stuck in traffic 
that it's well, as dangerous as impaired driving. you got the statistics from the coroner's well, office. I know, and we showed that they don't have that evidence to make that case. But um, the this punishment now, if you look at that driver <laughs> driver point premium, uh, is incredible because second... I couldn't afford that. I know. Second ticket is a four-month driving prohibition right now. That's what the superintendent of motor vehicles is sending people for a notice of intent to prohibit if you have a second one yeah. in two years. Yeah. We, by the way, defend those and and we've had some very good success with it. But um, second and ticket is a four-month driving If you're listening to the pro- podcast today on Friday, uh, you can read my blog post from yesterday on Thursday about the notice of intent system and why I think it's broken. The, yeah, it's a it's a actually it's a, flawed a system. it's a significant it's actually this is one of the few things that I will take this government to task for, and that is that they have not been they've been issuing these long driving prohibitions and they've not been properly reviewing them, and the procedure has really gone out of whack because of the mm-hmm. volume of these that they're sending out. Uh, but on top of that four month driving prohibition now, uh, six thousand seven hundred dollars if you include the tickets. Uh, close to $6,800 in fines. And also confirmed today something that I thought they were backing away from. And I've said that on the radio a few times that they were backing away from it. Uh, that was connecting your tickets to your car insurance. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be looking at um, a 40% swing potentially. So you, if you've got a good driving record, you might be looking at a 20% deduction in reduction, not deduction, reduction in your car insurance off the um, average amount, the average amount going up, so it, yours may not decline at all, uh, but a 20% increase if you've got some of these tickets or more than one accident. Don't forget, too, that that driver risk premium, if unpaid within 60 days of when they invoice you for it, 19% interest. 19% interest. So, $2,000 invoice. Oh, I'm sorry, but how many 19% families... 19% interest. How many families in British Columbia, how many people in BC at the end of every year have $2,000 left over? Oh, you know what I forgot to tell Dave? What? Um, they got to up the advertising on telling people this. They've got to educate the population. You know, this was one of... When I was on CBC the other day, um, the uh, one of the main things that people were calling in about was we have to educate the drivers better. Mm -hmm. And education doesn't always just mean like driving school or, you know, having to take courses and tests and testing people every time they go in there. Education can be billboards reminding people this is the punishment for picking up your device or having your device sitting loose in your car uh, while you're driving. That's the thing that gets me. I mean, well, lots of this gets me the in, insanity of charging people that much money when we all know that most people don't have that much left at the end of the year, that most people are living paycheck to paycheck. But also the notion that you can get that type of a that type of a, a ticket for having your cell phone loose in the cup holder or like those cases we saw in the summer where the cell phone was um, like the dead battery cases or the one with the cell phone blocker. And David Eby today at the event was talking about, oh, you know, we're working with ICBC on these cell phone blocker uh, technology. Well, great, but that doesn't comply with the Motor Vehicle Act. So in order to make that a feasible thing to help people avoid the consequences of an electronic device ticket, they're going to have to amend the Motor Vehicle Act to make it clearer that you can only actually get a ticket for something that constitutes use, not just having it around. And that's a, a, 
I know. One of our that's a lot of things. Biggest, yeah, but it's one of our biggest complaints. I think is the that the lack of sense issue. in the cell phone law. I mean, I'm appealing a case right now where the client had a the cell phone wedged into a part of the vehicle. It was wedged there. It wasn't going anywhere. It was securely affixed, but the court said the requirement is to have a contraption that affixes it to your vehicle. So I don't see that. I don't. I don't, I don't it's see not that in the, in the law. law. I don't see that in an interpretation of the law. I used to have a '77 Chev Caprice Classic, and I could slide anything down there in between the seats, and it would hold there tight and fixed. <laughs> Usually, it'd be a book that was long before there was cell. Well, it was long before I had any new cell phone. But, reading a book while driving. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't that. But anyway, the um, that was. Uh, uh, it, it the lack of education. Um, or the failure to properly educate people is clearly something that many British Columbia drivers think. Uh, Steve Wallace from Wallace Driving School on the island was on uh, CBC with me, and uh, I was talking to him today actually. And um, you know, it's not an issue merely of you know formal education. It can be billboards telling people these are the consequences. You need to know the consequences of this. And when they give people cell phone tickets, hand them a brochure. To explain to them sure. that this is what they are now going to pay if they get a second one. That might encourage more disputes, but so does thousands and thousands of dollars. Something that Steve said was very interesting, not related to any of this, um, but about the graduated licensing system. He recommended that perhaps if drivers go so many years without a violation when they have their N, Maybe we should just reward them by not making them have to go back and take the course to, to get a class five from a class seven. You don't have to take a course. Not a course, rather, a test. A what? test. So imagine you get your N. Yeah, You've but been you driving could just, for you five years. You could just years. get your N and fly back to China or Ireland or Brazil or wherever you're from and let time fly and then come That's back. A and- very small number of people would do that. Most of the people live here. That's why they're here. They come here. They get their end. They drive very carefully. If you go four years without getting a, a ticket, do you really need to go and take another exam? Can you not just provide people with a reward? Maybe That's an you encouragement, went four years an incentive. Hiring the good lawyers at Acumen Law to defend, defend your, your ticket. ticket. <laughs> so what? I mean, it, the point is, it's it's hold it out as a as a car- yeah. it's a carrot, right? Yeah. It's a nudge rather than always coming down hard. Um, it's a nudge, and I know that for a lot of people, scheduling that uh, second driver exam is a problem. Finding time to do it is a problem. Um, you know, so I, I think that was really something worth thinking no, about. No, I, I support that idea. I'm just being cynical as usual. Anyway, I, it's, I, I appreciate uh, it's the that. cynical o'clock. Cynical o'clock. <laughs> yeah. the, um, it comes once a day. Yeah. Lasts so, for several hours. Anyway, that is, I mean, I still, it is a bombshell to me because I have trouble coming to terms with that uh, level of driver point premium and driver risk premium as I'm sitting there uh, adding it up for people. Yep. Your, your cost of your second cell phone ticket now uh, is the cost of a good used car. Well, I have one piece of advice until the government changes the law so that it's more sensible to reflect the seriousness of the consequences, and that is dispute your tickets. Yeah, certainly dispute your ticket. Um, If you call us to dispute your ticket, it's handy for us because then we have some control over the trial date. 
but um, yeah, certainly. Um, but don't listen to the provincial court brochure about disputing your ticket that says that you have to hire your lawyer before you file it in dispute. You can call us at any time. You can call us two days before the ticket hearing. We don't like we it. Will until we do. <laughs> yeah, we prefer you gave us some some no time guess. to be able to prepare and uh, we have, But we have enough it. staff that we can make it work. Yeah. I don't think I've ever turned anybody away. We've always managed to deal with it. I think I have once. Well, there may be a good reason to turn some people away, I suppose. <laughs> anyway. But dispute your tickets. That's all I can say at this point in time. The future, if you are a driver, is financially bleak. One thing that David uh, Eby left out of the discussion today, um, which is a separate driving issue, sort of, and that we've talked about here on the podcast is the money laundering using um, using luxury cars. And I think they might be backing away from that. That is something for another day. That is something for another day. Maybe we can revisit that. And I hope that everybody will tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law with me and maybe Paul, maybe a guest. I won't spoil anything because my schedule's too up in the air at this point in time. <laughs> and uh, if you have any questions or want to contact us or want to dispute your ticket, uh, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com.